scripture reading this morning is from three different places, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, and Galatians 6, 14 and 15. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is God's word. Thank you. So good morning. Good to see you. Well, let's try that again. Good morning, you guys out there. Good to see you. All right. Welcome. Thanks for being here this morning. We continue uh, in a series that we began last week, this morning. Uh, We've called it All Things New uh, because this word new comes up in the Bible quite a bit. Over and over again, in fact. Uh, When God works, the result is something new. So here at the beginning of the new year, we're doing this brief series of sermons. And typically we would take a book of the Bible and we'd work our way through. But on occasion, what we will do is we'll take different chunks of the scriptures and put them together around a certain theme and topic. And, And still it's exegetical preaching. It's just from different places in the scriptures we did this morning. And so we've taken uh, these verses from the Old New Testament in various places because we're after a theology of new. We need a theology of new because this word new is so important in the Bible. There's a chapter in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity entitled Nice People or New Men, and I've taken it as the title of this sermon. It, was, it has been extremely formative in my life. If you've never read the book, and of course you should, It began, actually, as a series of radio talks that that C.S. Lewis made between 1941 and 1944 at the height of World War II. He was on the radio defending Christianity against um, the rationalists uh, of his day. And his argument in this particular chapter went something like this, that Christianity isn't something that just nasty people need but nice people can do without. In fact, nice people need saving just as much as nasty people do. And here's the way he said it. He said, a world full of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world and might even be more difficult to save. And so we, one of the things that we want to touch on in this just few weeks we have to look at this word new is to say that Christians are not nice people. Some of us are, but let's be honest, some of us aren't, and we're not really known for that in the world any longer, are we? 
And so the whole goal of this is not to turn us into nice people, which is good news for some and not so good news for others. We're more than that. We're meant to be something, something even more than that. Christians are new people. And it's the newness, it's the fact that Christians are more than nice, they're new, that proves Christianity to be true. That was C.S. Lewis's argument. And here's the quote that in that chapter that, that has really lodged itself in my soul. He said this, Mere improvement is not redemption, though redemption always improves people even here and now, and will in the end improve them to a degree which we cannot yet imagine. But God became a man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And then he gave an analogy, which is what he typically would do. He said, it's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Once it has its wings, it will soar over fences which could never have been jumped before. Now, this seems an important point to make here at the beginning of the year when our minds are full of resolutions. Well, what is it, the 11th or 12th? Of, so probably those resolutions are already a thing of the past for some of us. But even so, as we think about all the changes we'd like to make to better ourselves this year, that's good work to do, but in Christianity, we need to be clear, it is God that does the changing. The good news for you and I is that if he gets his hands on you or me, then you can become something even better than a, new, than a, than a better you. You can become something better than a better you. You can be made new, as we see in these texts. And so this promise of being made new, a new heart, a new creation, all the different images that are given to us here, it is, uh, we want to say three things about it this morning. It is the beginning reality of Christianity through what Christians typically refer to as conversion. It is the very first thing that happens to you uh, in your spiritual journey. Secondly, though, it also is an ongoing reality through repentance and faith for people who walk long in the same direction with Jesus. And in both cases, whether it's the beginning reality of conversion or the ongoing reality of repentance and faith, the power for the newness that we're promised here comes from being vitally connected to Jesus Christ. Those are the three things of all the things that we could see from these texts that I want to point out to you this morning. So let's just look together and begin with the first. Let's talk about this beginning reality of Christianity, what we mean by conversion. And in, and in Ezekiel 36, it is the promise of a new heart. God says there, look, look at those verses, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now these words were written to God's people in exile. Uh, they had been banished from their homeland, conquered by the Babylonians as an act of judgment on God's part because of their sin. Because for generations... Fathers to sons to fathers to sons, they had disobeyed his commands. They did not walk in his statutes, despite all of his warnings. They continued in their rebellion against the Lord, and he gave them over to their enemies until they were conquered and sent away from the land that he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the, this book of Ezekiel is written to these people who are experiencing this exile, but it's also at the same time a promise of restoration, because in the, very, in the preceding verses, and actually the verse before the ones printed for you there, in verse 24, God comes to them through the prophet and says, I'm going to gather you from the nations. I'm about to do this. I'm going to bring you back home, and I'm going to bring you back to the land that I promised your fathers. God's saying, I'm going to end the exile. They would go back home. But here's what we learn in these verses. They would go back home, but they would go back home with new hearts because that's what they needed the most. 
They got in trouble in the first place because they did not possess sufficient internal resources to obey God's commands. What they needed most, see, was not just a change of circumstances. They didn't need a change of location from Babylon to Jerusalem. They needed a change of heart. That's true for all of us, too. We need hearts that are able and willing to obey God. Because there is no life apart from that. There is no flourishing apart from that. So the gospel isn't the good news that obedience is optional because of grace. It's the good news that obedience is possible because of what God promises here. It's not just the news about what Jesus has done for us, but also what Jesus is doing in us. So grace isn't a hall pass. Grace isn't a permission slip for sin. It's a reigning power, the Bible says, that comes into your life, giving you the internal frame and the internal resources that you need to actually obey God. Because from beginning to end in the Bible, God's desire is a people who walk in his statutes and are careful to obey his rules. You see that there in verse 27. And we're told what keeps us from this obedience. Look there, God says, from all of your idols, from all of your idols, I will cleanse you, verse 25. And so sin is not something we commit as much as it's something that we're in, according to Fleming Rutledge. Sin is not just doing bad things. It, too, is a reigning power. And think about that word reign for a minute, and let's make sure we're on the same page. Rain, not R-A-I-N, reign, R-E-I-G-N. Think about that word reign. According to the Bible, there's no such thing as freedom the way we like to think of it. There's something, always something that's holding the reins of your life and driving you through life and all of the decisions that you make and the things that you do. There's some desire, there's some love that forms the motivational core of who you are and what your life is about. We're all serving something, some master, some God that has a hold of the reins. And anything or person that sits on the throne of your heart other than God is what the Bible calls an idol. You see it in verse 25, that word. And so here's the way the human heart works. We were made to worship. I know it's a double negative, but forgive me, you can't not worship. If you don't worship the true God, you will automatically make something else your God and live for it and serve it. So John Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. They're constantly manufacturing idol after idol after idol. And this is a problem for a number of reasons, but let me just offer two as we reflect on this this morning together. First, it's a problem because idolatry doesn't work. You see, when you make a relationship or a job or a 401k statement an idol, you're looking to it as the main source of your significance and worth and security. You're asking it to make you safe. You're asking it to save you. But, but the problem is idols don't save. They have no power to save. People will let you down. You know, even the best relationships will, will result in a bunch of frustration and disappointment and discouragement. Career success and wealth can't insulate you from a broken heart or cancer or the eventual economic downturn, only God can save. You with me? Only God can save. But we give our hearts to these other things. And the problem is, is when we do that, here's the second thing. Not only is it a problem because idolatry doesn't work, but what, what it does is when we engage in this, idolatry actually, actually ends up leaving you spiritually dull towards the one who can save. And that's the most deadly effect. So you notice how Ezekiel describes these people there? He says they have hearts of stone and not hearts of flesh. They are, their hearts are hard, stubborn, and unmoved toward the true God, the one who really can save. And, and one thing in particular, this is a temptation particularly for religious people. The more religious you are, according to the Bible, ironically, the more prone you are to spiritual heart disease. 
Because every time you come to church or you read your Bible and you hear God's word and it doesn't get inside and it doesn't affect you and you don't start to obey it, you become a little more unfeeling the next time. And after a while, you keep doing this over and over again, you're spiritually dull. You hear, but you don't really hear. You see, but you don't really see. And then what does this produce? What are the symptoms of this disease that's being described here? Well, let's talk about the opposite of it for a minute, then we'll describe it. We're reading through the Gospel of Luke as a church at the beginning of the year, and I hope you are too. But have you noticed, it just really stands out to me all the time whenever we're in the Gospels. Have you noticed the reaction that people have to Jesus' teaching and his ministry? I mean, over and over again, over and over again, Luke reports, people were astonished and in awe, and they were amazed. They were shaken to their core, excuse me, by what they were seeing. I mean, in Luke 5, Peter and Jesus go fishing, and it begins to dawn on Peter who Jesus really is, and he immediately has this overwhelming sense of his sinfulness, and he falls on his knees, and he begs Jesus to go away, and it's a strange reaction, except when you realize that it's the normal reaction people have when Jesus gets close. But in every case, there's this massive affect. The people you read about immediately intuit the spiritual implications of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And so they say things like, this is extraordinary. We've never seen anything like this before. This man has authority. Uh, well, you know, who is he? And, and, and in a lot of cases, they leave everything to follow him because that's the only way really to respond to someone who claims to be what he claims to be. Now, that is very different from the person who comes to church and goes through the motions and feels nothing. And I'll admit, there are dark nights of the soul where you have to endure periods of spiritual dryness. That's not what I'm talking about here. That's something very real, and so if you're there, don't be discouraged by my words. This is something else. This is, I'm, I'm talking about a per persistent sense of unfeeling, whereas affect is a sign of spiritual health and maturity. And affect refers to feelings and affections, and not to some kind of public display. And there's a difference, and we should make, make sure we, we say that. You don't have to raise your hands in church to prove how spiritual you are, how much you love Jesus. But at the same time, if you really do love him, sometimes you just can't help yourself. I mean, do you feel deeply about spiritual things? So much so that what you feel inside can't help but put a smile on your face? Does the things you believe affect your countenance? Does it get the best of you sometimes and you just can't help but tell everybody you meet about Jesus? Or do you get so overwhelmed in, in a service like this at times that you have to just fall on your knees like Peter or raise your hands or just weep with reverent gratitude and joy? Does any of that ever happen to you? Because if not, it could be a sign of heart disease, spiritual heart disease. Well, if so, what's the cure? The text says that God can cleanse us from our idols, our idols that take our affections and that cause us to be in feeling towards the Lord himself, and he can give us new hearts and a new spirit by removing the heart of stone in us and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And so what you learn here is that before you can obey, before you can even believe in him, you have to get a new heart. Do you see the phrase in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 down there? where Paul describes this new creation of God, and then in verse 18, he says, all this comes from God. And so God has to take you from life to death. Then you can believe. Then you can obey. But he has to give you a new heart first. And this is what we call conversion. 
When Christians talk about conversion, this is what they mean. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You're not a Christian unless you've experienced it. Supernatural work of God's grace in your heart to give you a new heart. So the power for change is not moral resolve. It is this. It is conversion. It is the heart of flesh in the place of the heart of stone. And what's the difference with that? Well, if you try to cut through a rock with an axe or a knife, what happens? Well, you don't get anywhere. And probably the blade you're using will get chipped or bent or something because a rock, you know, you just bang against the rock. But if you accidentally cut yourself while you're making dinner at home in the kitchen, what happens then? Well, you know that, right? It hurts. You bleed. You feel it for days and days while it, while it heals. And God is saying through the prophet, here's what I'm going to do for my people. I'm going to remove your cold, unfeeling heart and give you a heart that is sensitive to me and my word. And that's how you can be sure that I'm at work. So people tell me all the time they come to church and just cry through the whole thing. Pastors like to make people cry. You know that, right? Makes us feel good about ourselves. Just kidding. But here's why it encourages me when people say that, because it means that's the heart of flesh. That's the heart that's, that gets cut. That, that person is thawing out emotionally. And that's a good thing. And so if you're here, you're not a Christian, or if you think you are, but you can't remember the last time you felt anything, you might need a new heart. You might need a heart transplant, the kind that God promises here, and only God can do it. And so here's my advice. Ask him. Ask him for it. And so these texts are describing a one-time event that marks the beginning of, of eternal life in a person's life. A moment in time when you pass from death to life and you get a new heart. But it is also, the second thing, and we'll be much quicker from here, it's also an ongoing reality for people of faith as they continually live a lifestyle of, of repentance and faith. And so if you're a Christian, uh, you know, and you're sure of that, then that is because you've been given a new heart. But what's true of that new heart is that new heart is now beating in you. And in the beating of that new heart, you are becoming a new creation. That's what Paul says here. So the second image he uses here is not just this new heart inside, but what the new heart produces. And it's this, this language of new creation. So look at 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, he says. And then again in Galatians 6. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor in circumcision but a new creation. And so here's this language, this Old Testament language of God renewing the whole earth, which is the ultimate promise of the Bible. And you see it in Revelation 21 where, where the new Jerusalem is coming down and the new heavens and the new earth are replacing this old order of things. But, but Paul's saying, no, it's not just the whole earth. It's being, you, you yourself are becoming a, <clears throat> excuse me, the very new creation of God as he goes to work in your life. And so... It begins with this new heart that God promises because the heart is not just where the emotions are. The heart is the control panel of a person's life. Your brain, your stomach, your hands, your feet, your hormones, sometimes even, your, everything follows your heart in some sense. Keep your heart with all vigilance, Proverbs says, for from it flow the springs of life. And so if your heart is bad... If your heart is bad, it will bring forth all kinds of bad stuff. If your heart is good, it brings forth all kinds of good. In other words, the main problem in life is not what's happening to us, but what's coming from within us. 
And we are so trained to think of ourselves as victims in our culture. But the Bible says when you're going through bad stuff, the very first place you look is inside. It's not the only place you look, but the very first place you look is inside. We talked about this all last summer, about the change that we need being this change from the inside out. And the promises the, promises of the Bible is just that, divine power to change us. Not our circumstances necessarily, us. Remember, Matthew 1 says that Jesus came and he didn't come to save his people from their circumstances. He didn't come to save them from the Romans. He didn't come to save them from whatever, whoever. He came to save them from their sins. So the promise is a change in us, not necessarily a change in our circumstances. But of course, if God begins to change us, what happens to everything else? So whatever problem, the first solution is always some kind of internal change of such magnitude that it then begins to change everything else as well. And that's why, if you're wondering, you know, you've been here for a while, we don't preach eight steps to a better relationship type sermons because we believe that what you need is not technique. You need character. You need a new motivational core. You need the internal resources to be a friend. And if you can be a friend, then you'll have friendships or in parenting, the issue I've learned, the issue, the issue in parenting is not about the children. The issue in parenting is about you yourself being parented by God. <laughs> the challenge of parenting is not getting kids to do what you say. The challenge in parenting is through God's parenting of you to become the kind of person that they should want to obey. So the work of parenting in my life is not so much the work God's doing in my kids as much as it's the work he's doing in me. And so that's, that's why we talk about the things we talk about. If you're not a Christian, that's why you should become one. Because Jesus' promise here is spiritual power that reaches all the way to the inside. And if you get a new heart, if you're powerfully changed in the control panel of your life, in the core of who you are, which is what Ezekiel 36 describes, then you'll eventually begin to feel the effect in all the other parts of your life. You'll become a new creation, not just a better you but something completely different than before. The old things, look there in that Corinthians passage, the old things, which is the archaos in the Greek, the archaos, the archaic ways, the old things go away, new comes. Now, y'all don't, maybe don't know this about me, but I can be a little nerdy and I have to get a little nerdy here for just a minute, okay, so bear with me. Because this is really important to understand and there's some really significant stuff that's happening in this one little tiny verse here. Uh, there are different verb tenses that Paul uses, and that's really his point. That's how he makes his point here, not just in the words, but in even the way he constructs the sentence, which if you love English, you know that this is good you know, good writing. And so the first part where it says, the old has passed away, that is very specifically, it's in a, a specific tense of verbs, in the aorist tense, and the aorist tense is used to describe something that is once and for all past action. In other words, something, some kind of definitive thing that has taken place that causes radical change on the other side. And so he says the old things are gone. The old things go away. There's something definitive that was happening and it never happens ever again. Now the second part, he says the new is coming, but that he changes verb tenses, which is really surprising and and again, I think it is the point. And there it refers to an ongoing process. It's the perfect tense. It's something that is still being worked out in us. And so if you put the two together, it would say something like this. This is really this is the Drew Bennett translation of that verse, which is really scary. You probably shouldn't even pay attention. But here's what I think Paul's saying. And because you gotta get you gotta get the theology right here. He's saying, there was something you once were. You are no longer that. 
But the new thing that God's making you, the new thing you're becoming, it's happening, but it's not all the way here yet. You can go wrong in two ways with this, okay? And so you can think about this verse and you can underestimate the present spiritual power at work in your life. You can forget the already reality and act as if the old is not gone. We do this all the time. We act in our lives as if we do not have the spiritual power we need to say no to, to sin. We act as if um, the we act as if we're still striving and trying to earn God's smile and his love and his acceptance of forgiveness. When he says, no, I've justified you, which means the gavel's come down, the verdict is in, and yet we go and we live our lives as if it's not. And so you can underestimate and you can, you can forget the already reality. You can, you can forget the Bible says, if you belong to Jesus, you're free from the dominion of sin and go and still act like a slave. Or you can overestimate. You can forget the not yet of the new thing that's coming, that the old stuff is gone, decisively gone, but not completely gone, not all the way gone. At least that's not my experience, and I don't think it's yours either. You, you, you're still going to have to deal with that old stuff that rears its head every now and then. And the new stuff is coming. It's here, but it's not all the way here yet. There's still work to do. You never arrive, not until you get to heaven anyway. And so the promise of the new creation isn't just something that is. You have to fight for it. Through a lifestyle of repentance and faith, to be constantly, and I, this is what I mean by repentance and faith, it means to be constantly reminding yourself on the one hand of the present reality of spiritual power to change in profound ways. That you, because of the work Jesus has done for you and in you, there is at your disposal, you have access to present spiritual power to change in profound ways and to not allow yourself to become cynical about your sin or my sin. And so profoundly hopeful, right? Profound hope when it comes to dealing with the same old stuff in you or dealing with the same old stuff in your spouse or in your kids or whatever the case might be, but also always hope, but never just hope, always grace along with it because it's never complete. It's never perfect. We're all works in progress. We're never going to do it right all the time. You're not supposed to get it right all the time. And so you've got to be patient and you've got to show yourselves and others tons of grace as they work out this incredible work that God is working in them. You with me? Hope, but grace. And the repentance and faith is constantly realigning yourself. When you get cynical, it's realigning yourself with, with, with the hope piece. And when you get self-righteous, it's realigning yourself with the grace piece. Because this approach, if you could have an approach to life, your life in the life of this community that is hopeful, but also always full of grace, it will result with ever-increasing newness. Where the power at work in you will begin to work through you and the people and places around you more and more until Jesus comes to make all things new once and for all, forever. Now I need to finish up. So whether it is conversion or the ongoing process of repentance and faith, let's ask this last question as we close today. Where does the power for this promise of newness, this new heart, this new creation come from? And I want to focus on the Galatians 6 passage uh, just as we close, where Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is remarkable. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but new creation. Now, Paul's off the map here. He's talking about things that not only do we not know, but we don't hardly ever live as if they're true. It's such a fascinating passage, those, those verses are, because on the one hand, it tells us what doesn't work. 
Look there, Paul calls, he says, circumcision and uncircumcision, neither of those things count for anything. And uncircumcision there refers to an irreligious approach to life. This is the typical secular person who says, you know, they're, they're not, there are no moral absolutes. Just live your truth. No need to change. You don't need to change. That's not your problem. Your problem is not that there's something in you. You just need to learn to accept yourself and to love yourself. And don't worry about what other people think of you. It's okay. Just be you be you. You do you. There's no need for you to change. But the problem with this, Paul says, is that it doesn't, it doesn't count. Literally, if you look in the original language, it says it's nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. It's, no rea- it's not reality. There's no power in it. There's nothing there. And if you're here this morning, I assume that you would, for the most part, agree. But look, he goes on to say, not only cir- uncircumcision, but circumcision, it doesn't count for anything either. And that refers to a religious approach to life. And a religious person says, see, the irreligious person says, I, there's, I don't need to change. I'm fine just the way I am. I'm just trying to learn to accept myself. But the religious person says, no, I realize I need to change, but the power for change has to come from me. It's what I do. It's the plans I make. I better have some good resolutions this year because that's the thing that's going to do it. I got to try harder. I got to believe more. That's my problem is I'm insufficient in some way. That's what's going to unlock the spiritual power in my life. But Paul says, no, 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 that doesn't count either. That's nothing also. That can't get you anywhere. It's not, it's not enough just to be a nice person. Right? Remember C.S. Lewis here, he said, a world full of nice people, content in their own niceness, and looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and yet even more difficult to save. So what we learn here is Christianity is not irreligion, but it's not religion either. It's, it's something completely different. It's, it's gospel. So what matters, what counts, where the power comes from, is what is, what is, what truly is, is not what you do or don't do, but what God has done. So it's not that there is no need for change. And it's not that the power to change comes from you. Instead, the truth is that the power to change has to come into you. And it comes into you, according to the Bible, through a vital living connection with Jesus Christ. I mean, the way Paul puts it here just astounds me, to be honest. I look at those verses again as I kind of, again, summarize them. He says... Jesus died upon the cross for the sins of the world. That is our gospel. But when Jesus died upon the cross, it didn't just do something for us. It actually accomplished something in us. When Jesus was crucified, he says, we were crucified with him. It was as if we were there, right there with him. And so the result of this experience, this being united to him in his death, is a profound change, the profound change we need. It is the spiritual power to cleanse us from our idols. Look at the way he puts it, to overthrow their power. He says, we died. What happened is when Jesus died, I died with him. We died to those old idols, and they died to us. And so there's been this decisive breaking of their hold on us in the death of Jesus Christ. And so look again at 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, if anyone, he talks about the new creation. He says, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. Well, who is the new creation? The one who's in Christ. So Paul says it doesn't matter whether you're bad or good. That's not the point at all. What matters is whether you're in Christ and he's in you. What matters is if you have a living, vital relationship with God through Jesus Christ, because that's the essence of Christianity, not rules, not rituals, a living relationship with God through Jesus. And if by faith you are connected to him in that way, then when he died, you died with him. And here's why that's good news. If you died with him when he died, then guess what? When he rose from the dead on the third day, guess what happened to you? 
You rose with him too into what Paul calls newness of life, and that is the spiritual power. Coming from him into you as you live by faith in him. So the Bible talks about a new covenant that's being made between God and his people. You'll see that's the third point in my outline there. And it's, the, the text is found primarily in Jeremiah 31, but it's quoted in Hebrews 8 as well, which we read a minute ago. There God promises a couple of things. He says, he promises, he promises um, to love us at our very worst, to love us the best when we're at our very worst, to be merciful toward us in our sins and remember our sins no more. Isn't that great news? I mean, he remembers your sins no more. Isn't that just the best? It is, it's just the best. But here's the thing, it gets even better because he goes on. He says this new covenant, it's not only that, but also that he's going to put his law in our minds and write it in our hearts so that his, his, uh, his desire for our obedience will come all the way on the inside to do what Ezekiel said, to make us a people who can truly obey from the heart, having been set free from sin, so that we would be those that Ezekiel describes as careful to obey his commandments and to walk in all of his statutes and decrees. That we would be moved by this new spirit in us to obey in profound ways that we did not uh, possess the power to do so before. Isn't that great? So have you ever noticed how often something is advertised as being new and improved? Have you ever thought about that? It's a strange description, isn't it? Because, of course, if something is new, then it's not, then it's not really improved, is it? Those are two different things. If something is new, it's more than improved. It's new. It's something different than it was before. And that is ultimately the promise. If God gets his hands on you, and if you begin to, to learn the secret of living through repentance and faith in daily vital communion with him through Jesus Christ, then this new covenant he makes with his people and that he makes with you is just this, love towards your sins, to love you the best, when you're at your very worst, and power, power, the resurrection power of Jesus, the, the, new, the, the power that brought the creation into existence now at work in your innermost life. And the result of that, listen, the result of that is not just improvement. It's not just a better you. No, Jesus' love is love enough. And his power is power enough to do something better than just make you an improved you. His love is love enough and his power is power enough to make you new. Okay? And so I said, don't, you can overestimate, you can underestimate. You can do either of those two things. But here's what I want to say to you just before I close. The, the impetus of this text. And even though I, I, I don't want to unsay what I just said a minute ago. But even though there's that balance that we have to find. What I want you to feel. What, I, what I'm hoping that you'll feel this morning is the reality that this is a present spiritual truth that you can enter into and experience the power of. Jesus' love for you today. If you can live and keep yourself in his love and his power at work in you today, right now, where you sit, is love enough and it is power enough to do something better than just to improve you. It's power enough and it's love enough to make you new. Amen? Let's pray. Would you pray with me? So, Father, just there, as we, uh, some of us probably came with notebooks in hand uh, that have written in them all the things that we've vowed to do differently this year, and yet, in, in truth, what we did was just took out the list from last year 
and looked it over and rewrote it because most of the things we promised last year we still need to do this year and so forth because this is the way things go with us. We make vows and promises to change things and it never seems to change, but if you would come and if you would give to us your spirit, if you would do in us what you say here and remove from us our heart of stone and give to us a heart of flesh and if you would give us a new spirit and put your spirit in us and move us and work in us, as you say, then it would be for us spiritual power to learn a whole new way of living and to bear fruit that will glorify you. If we abide in you, you say, then we will do, we'll do just that, we'll bear much fruit. And so we just ask for that. That is what we need. Give us the right vision that that, that, that is what we need. Something more than just some tinkering with our life this year. We need some of us, for the very first time, we need to be made new. And we would come to you and say, here's my heart, take it. Replace this stony heart with a heart of flesh. But for many of us, we'd say, where, where we've grown calloused and cold and insensitive and unfeeling, oh, Father, would you come and would you just touch us there? Just touch us and cause our hearts to beat again with love and adoration and wonder and joy so that we might have all of the resources that we need to obey you as you demand and as we should, as you're worthy of. But we know uh, from beginning to end, this is your work, which is why the most appropriate thing for us to do, no matter where we are, is to sing a doxology. And that's what this last song we'll sing is. It is the declaration that all things are from you because uh, the work is all yours and so the praise is all yours. And so receive and accept this song just as that, as the prayer of absolute dependence upon you, of laying ourselves before you say, oh God, you've got to work or nothing will be done. And yet the confidence and trust that you are one who fills all of your promises, even these we read here. And so do that, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The power to live uh, and experience the kind of change that these verses describe comes from the absolute confidence and assurance of the, um, of the love of God uh, for you in Jesus Christ and uh, your, your complete um, confident experience of living all of life beneath a smile. Uh, and so that's what these words promise. And so here at the beginning of the year, before you fail at all the things you say you're going to do, know here uh, every day this year uh, these words meet you wherever you are, right? Uh, it's not at the end of the year when we've earned it and we've shown that we can do it. It's here that God says these words to us. So receive this benediction and may it, may it resound throughout all the days of your year this year. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.